Please follow along on the screen or in your own Bible as I read Colossians 1, 3 through 23. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is also, do as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to you, made known to us, your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Good to be with you this morning. Um, <clears throat> I am uh, humbled uh, and honored to be able to uh, stand before you, my beloved church, and to uh, open up God's Word. Um, and uh, it is uh, such a joy, um, such a joy to sit with you each and every Sunday, to sit under uh, solid preaching and teaching, uh, studying the Bible together, working things out uh, uh, with one another uh, week in and week out. Um, and uh, this is just an amazing opportunity. I'm so thankful, thankful to the elders, thankful to everybody who prayed for me. Um, I could not have uh, uh, gotten through this without you, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to wrestle with this text uh, with you. Um, so uh, let's get into it. Uh, so when, uh, if, you've, uh, if you've noticed over the last... Uh, couple of years, maybe even the last uh, three, four years, um, uh, the world's gotten a little crazy, uh, and, and, and there's been kind of a seismic or seemingly seismic culture shift. Um, we see it in the news, uh, you see it, uh, you know, in, in your communities, um, and we're starting to see it in the church. 
But this has weighed really heavy on me over the last, uh, last several years, and so uh, this, this passage that we're going to look at today in Colossians chapter 1 is one that I have uh, I've wrestled with and I've, I've clung to um, uh, throughout the past couple of years, and, uh, I, and it's something that's I, I, it's always stuck with me, and I'm, uh, I've always wondered, uh, you know, why, why this passage in, in this time uh, with, with all of these things going on and with the things that I'm noticing in the church uh, and, and the shift of, of uh, dear brothers who I went to seminary with or pastors who I, I respected who had a significant impact on me. Uh, you know, why, why this passage? Well, when, uh, when I was a young and uh, uh, zealous uh, seminary student, uh, and this is probably anywhere between uh, 10, and, uh, 10 and 12 years ago now, and that's kind of crazy to think about. Uh, I worked at a boarding school here in Texas, um, and I lived on campus with the students, and, and essentially I was a parental figure for, uh, for the students who lived on campus, and, and I helped them with, uh, with homework uh, and, and the like, uh, and um, during this time, uh, the school began to shift uh, from a boarding school to more of an uh, international private Christian school. And um, as you can imagine, it became increasingly more difficult to build relationships uh, with students from different cultures, and it became increasingly more difficult to share the gospel with them. Uh, and during this time, we had several staff meetings that were focused on the task of communicating with people of different cultures. Uh, and one of these was led uh, by one of our, one of our counselors, and uh, this particular counselor, uh, his one of his greatest joys in life was to get under people's skin, uh, and uh, as he was getting his presentation ready, he was uh, walking around the room and he was placing several items in front of people, uh, <clears throat> who he knew would find that particular item offensive. Well, as he was making his rounds, uh, he plopped right on the table um, in front of me uh, a little a little bobblehead, uh, and, and it was called uh, "My Buddy Jesus," or I think it was uh, "Buddy Christ." And uh, Buddy Christ is uh, he, it was a bobblehead that was popularized by the 1999 film Dogma, um, and it's it's this depiction of Jesus, and he's kind of pointing the finger guns at you, and he's giving you a thumbs up, and he's smiling and winking. You know, everything's all right. He's such a cool guy. He's so affirming. Well, it worked. I was deeply offended, so much so that I don't even remember what the point of that uh, training was. <laughs> so, uh, but, but this image, this image of this buddy Jesus and the way that it was presented to me, uh, it's probably going to stick with me the rest of my life. And that image, the bobblehead, yes, but, but mostly this idea, and I call it a, a low view or a false view of Christ. You can see this in the way much of the West sees Christianity, in, in, in the way much of the West practices religion. You can even see it in much of the way uh, people who uh, profess to be in Christ live their lives. I can't tell you uh, how many people I've talked to or how many 
messages I've seen where somebody was called out in their sin or maybe a sin pattern was revealed in their lives and their response was, it's okay, Jesus will forgive me. On the other side of that coin, this low view of Jesus sometimes declares to the person who holds to it that Jesus is not enough. And so, um, in addition to living how we want and thinking that Jesus is just going to sm- you know, snap his fingers at us and smile and wink, we add to what he has done because we see this weak Christ and we're thankful that he got the bill, but we have no confidence, no confidence that he can sustain us, no confidence uh, that all, uh, all is taken care of. And so we add, to, uh, we add to this with the law. Maybe we make our own laws, make our own religious practices that we, we, we hold strict to and we cling to those things as if they're the things that are going to get us the rest of the way. Jesus, thank you for getting me this far I got it from here. Now fast forward to just yesterday, and I saw through a friend of mine who is on YouTube, uh, his YouTube channel is K-Dub True, he does apologetics, and he addresses addresses false teaching regularly uh, through his program called All Things Theology. Um, Shout out to him. but this, he, he points out this, this thing that happened just yesterday, this woman who calls herself a theologian, okay, mind you, and she posted to Twitter this. She said, I know this is hard for many Christians, but people don't need Jesus. You may need Jesus, that's okay. That doesn't mean everyone else does. Believing That you know what others need is both supremacy in you and wildly disrespectful of others. The way we view Jesus has a deeply significant impact on how we live and also has a lasting and widespread impact on what we proclaim. But it also affects how we are influenced, and what we allow to influence us. You know the phrase, history repeats itself? Well, uh, this happened in, uh, in Colossae. Okay? Uh, we, we can see, if you open your Bibles, <laughs> I hope you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Sorry, I forgot to invite you to do that with me. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 15 through 23 most of the time. We're going to, we're going to get there. But in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 6, we have the kind of the main thematic uh, uh, point of the passage. And he says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Okay? Uh, and that, we, we, we know from this chapter 2, verse 6, that Paul's writing to believers, he's writing to the church, okay, this is for us today, it is for the, Col- the church in Colossae in that day, and we can see from verse 8 why he's writing this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we see that there were, there were external philosophies Deceitful teachings, 
that were starting to seep into the church and that were starting to influence God's people. I think this is why I've been so captivated by Colossians for the last few years. Um, and, and in particular, this chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Paul doesn't begin by immediately engaging with the false teachings. He doesn't immediately begin by, by calling out all of these things and calling people out, uh, calling out false teachings. In true Paul fashion, he begins with a very long thanksgiving and prayer for the people of God. And then he sets the foundation for all of the things that are going to come after. He sets the gaze of the church in Colossae, and he sets his gaze before he engages with these things upon Christ. And that's what I want to do today. And so I, I'm, I, I've actually shifted. I'm not really going to address a lot of these false teachings that have entered the church. Instead, I want to begin where Paul begins. And I want to cast our gaze upon Jesus as the foundation for all of our lives, for all that we proclaim. I want to do so by looking at verses 15 through 23, and largely this is considered, a, 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 it, there's some debate over this passage, whether it's a pre-existing hymn or Paul authored it. Um, we're not going to get into that today. It is a, it is a, a hymn, and, and so there is kind of a rhythm to it. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see that as we get in, and let's begin. Starting at verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting for the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we begin in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Stop there. Paul begins this section stating Christ is the image, icon, icon of the invisible God. Now, image here uh, conveys a sense of something that looks like or represents something else, if I may borrow from Douglas Moo's definition. And that word image um, kind of calls us back to Genesis. Uh, more specifically, in Genesis 1, uh, chap uh, chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We also see the same word used in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And it reads, In their case, the God of this world was, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, one key difference between 
this, uh, how this is depicted in Genesis and Colossians uh, is the word is. Uh, and, and, and Greek geeks get excited. The word is esteen there. It conveys this sense of timelessness. And it fits with what, what Paul's saying here. It says, essentially, that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, and he always has been, and he always will be. And unlike Adam, he is the perfect image of God. He images God perfectly. And we, we, we see that in John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God I'm going to say, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That's Jesus. Right off the bat in the first half of chapter 15, Paul is saying that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who perfectly reflects and displays the glory of God in order that we may know him. And this is uniquely characteristic of Jesus. He is also the firstborn of all creation. Now to understand this, we need to understand the concept of firstborn. And and in order to do that, I think that we need to look at Psalm 89, in particular verse 27. And it says... And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now this, this psalm is, is talking, uh, ta- talking about both David and it is pointing forward to Christ. But I want to hone in on David for our purposes here, okay? David is referred to as the firstborn. Was he the firstborn son of Jesse? No. He was the youngest. He was the youngest, and yet he was made king. So we're not talking about, as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons would contend, that Christ is the literal firstborn of all of creation. No, this is about his sovereignty and his kingship. Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the rightful heir and thus the sovereign king over all of creation. And this is undergirded by the following verse in verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I like how Douglas McCready puts it. He says, Paul did not write that the Son created the rest of creation, but that he created all that was created. This excludes the Son from the created order, and Paul was careful enough with words for this to have been no oversight. Jesus is outside of creation. Jesus is the uh, 
external, eternally preexistent, sovereign ruler and creator of all things. He is God the Son. And here in verse 16, I want to I want to hammer home that all things constitutes all things. Now, several years ago, uh, this uh, this thing was discovered called the Higgs boson particle, uh, and it was it was I guess kind of a big deal. And if you do a quick Google search uh, uh, on uh, on what Higgs boson particle is or why it's important. Uh, uh, it's because it signals the existence of the Higgs field, which is an invisible energy field present throughout the universe that imbues other particles with mass. Okay? And it only makes sense that this field that is so in- intricately designed to imbue mass to other particles was designed and created. And I'm here to tell you today, that according to Colossians 1.16, Jesus created the Higgs field and the particle. They are visible, they are invisible, and they were created by him, through him, and for him. Jesus being sovereign over creation and before all creation, he is the God, he is the creator God of, uh, of creation all of creation, both old creation and new creation, all spiritual beings, all spiritual realms, all political powers, both sides, all rulers in every nation for all of time, all authorities, even the ones you don't like, All of the things that annoy you, all of the things that bring you joy, all pastors, all teachers, including the false ones, he is sovereign over all. There is not one iota of the entire universe over which Christ is not sovereign. In verse 17, it kind of restates this, and and when the Bible restates something, it's because it's important. Okay? It restates that He's before all things. He pre-existed all things. And... Jesus, who pre-existed all things, who created all things, all things were created through him and for him and and by him. In Christ, all things hold together. He's before all things, being the creator of all things, and he sustains all things. He is actively holding all of this together in his providence. Everything that you see, everything that you don't see. This world with all of its issues is being held together by Christ. You, as an individual, 
with all of your struggles and all the challenges that you face and all of your successes and all of your sorrows, Christ is holding you together. Believer or not, it doesn't matter. Jesus is sovereign over you. This is true of the old or, or first creation, as we've seen so far in verses 15 through 16, 17. And it is true of the new creation as we transition here in verse 18. Verse 18 starts it, it says, And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. What you're seeing here is kind of a parallel as we begin this new section of this hymn where we're transitioning from old creation to new creation. And the parallel is that what is true of the pre-existing Christ's sovereignty over the first creation is true or is the blueprint for Christ's sovereignty over the new creation. That Christ is the head of the church means that he is both in authority over the church and that he sustains and nourishes the church. You see, uh, if, if we're, we're looking at, uh, I guess, me, if you can see me over this, uh, I'm relatively short, um, relatively. Uh, but uh, the head, okay, the head tells the body what to do. Okay, the, the, the head tells the body what to do. It calls on the arm to fulfill its unique purpose, to position the hand, uh, it, it put the hand, move the hand in the correct position in order to fulfill its unique purpose, and grabbing a coffee, and they work together in their own distinct ways to bring the coffee to the mouth. And that is how I am being sustained right now. Christ is our authority. Christ nourishes us. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In Jesus' resurrection, after his death on the cross... A new creation has begun. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is before all things. It's sovereign over all things in the first creation. And he is before all things and sovereign over all things in the new creation. He is the highest authority over the church. And he brings the church into existence. G.K. Bill writes, this is not sovereignty only over all things that God recreates within the faith community of the new age, but he is ruler even over all forces that, that do not acknowledge his rule. Yeah. 
And again from Bill, the preeminence that the Son of God came to have through his resurrection entails not only a transformation of the human nature that he took on, but also a new redemptive historical manifestation of what is always true of his eternal person. Meaning that in being the firstborn from the dead, Jesus, through his resurrection, retains what has always been true of him in eternity past. Jesus, after he entered the world as a baby, is the same eternally pre-existing sovereign God, the Son, by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created, in whom all things hold together. And he retains that preeminence, that sovereignty, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus is first in all things. He is preeminent. Whether you put him there or not, he is preeminent. And as we gaze upon him, we need to see that. We need to see that preeminence. We need to feel that preeminence. We need to take hold of it and believe it and stand upon it. How is he preeminent in verse 19? It kind of describes, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As Stephen Wellam writes, in other words, the Son, Paul asserts, is the place where God in all his fullness was pleased to take up his residence and display his glory. Peter O'Brien adds that all the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, word, wisdom, and glory are perfectly displayed in Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ becomes, here, in verse 19 and 20, we see that Christ becomes the perfect temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God dwelled among his people. It also served as the place where sacrifices were made. in order to make peace with God and reconcile the people of Israel. And here, Paul's stating that here, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in order to reconcile all things, which alludes back to verse 16, in which all of creation and he makes peace by the blood of his Christ by the blood of his cross excuse me in Christ the perfect temple where all of creation is restored and reconciled and all of God's people are restored and reconciled Christ is the sacrifice as well as the temple. 
He's the perfect spotless lamb by whose blood all of creation can be restored and reconciled and God's chosen people can be restored and reconciled. Why do we need to be reconciled? Why do we need to be reconciled? Verse 21 through... um, 23, you'll notice another shift. Verses 15 through 20, Paul is gazing upon Christ. He is upholding Christ before the church to gaze upon Him in all of His glory. And in verse 21, he transitions and he starts talking to you and me. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Why do we need to be reconciled? We were alienated from God and hostile towards Him. That's what the Bible says. We do evil deeds. I want to remind you, Paul's talking to the church. Even the good things we do are usually driven by some kind of evil or selfish desire. For personal gain or some side benefit, mostly. As Paul also says in Romans chapter 3, he says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. To respond to that lady's tweet that I referenced earlier, everyone needs Jesus. Everyone. And it's not a matter of my supremacy, it's a matter of His. We sinned against this God, eternally pre-existing. You can't wrap your mind around it. We know what the words mean, but it's very hard to dwell on that. Eternally pre-existing, before all things, who created all things, invisible and visible and invisible, spiritual and tangible, all things. He holds all things together. That's who we've sinned against. That's who we've been alienated from, apart from Christ, apart from the blood of His cross. And thanks be to God that we aren't left with just verse 21. Paul didn't end Colossians in verse 21 and said, Good luck! No, Christ 
the supremely sovereign God the Son. Christ has reconciled us sinners by His death in order to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach. In other words, we become heirs with Christ and we become like Christ. Our tarnished tarnished image-bearing is restored so that we reflect the glory of Christ. And if you're visiting with us and maybe this is the first time you're hearing about this Jesus, this Jesus, I want to plead with you, repent. Turn away from your sin. Place your faith in this Jesus, the eternal sovereign Son of God who put on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, experiencing the wrath of God for our sins, was raised from the dead, and now is ascended to the right hand of God where he is seated and interceding for us. Do not leave this place. Do not leave this place, I Plead with you without pulling someone aside and asking questions. If the person you ask is a member of this church, I can attest with all confidence that they will be patient, they will listen, they will help you, and if they don't know the answer, then they will either introduce you to someone who does or they will search their Bible and get back to you. Don't leave this place without contemplating these truths, without repenting and placing your faith in Christ. And for the church, for the church, my dear brothers and sisters, we have a conditional clause in verse 23. If Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If we continue in the faith and remain steadfast, not shifting from this gospel, this gospel, what you believe about Jesus matters. What you are influenced by matters. Paul goes on to uh, sort of give an account for his ministry to the church. And in doing so, as we, as we see this, as we continue to read on, we get a glimpse of what it looks like inside of a pastor's heart for God's people as he contends for them um, by refuting the false teachings that, teachings that were pervasive in the church back then and actually still are today. He does so by standing upon the foundation of who Christ is and what he's done. This Jesus, who we've just read about, this gospel, freely given. He says in verse 28, 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal. We proclaim this Jesus. And standing upon the foundation of this Jesus, the supreme sovereign king, we refute false teaching, we warn people about the things that they're letting into their lives, and we teach them with this wisdom. This wisdom. In order that we may present people mature to Christ. Not to win an argument. Not to get to the end of days and say, ha ha, I told you so. But that we may present these people, these people, false teachers included. If they are willing to repent. Mature in Christ. Everyone, everyone mature in Christ. When you inevitably uh, hear people say that they don't need Jesus uh, or that they're deconstructing their faith, that's a hot word that we see today in the church, uh, and they're trying to find peace outside of Christ uh, in his church, or if, if you hear people talk about these external uh, philosophies and ideologies uh, as a means of well, let's say improving our outreach. It's a good one that I've heard. Such as adopting something as counter to the gospel as critical theory or its child critical race theory. And I, I know plenty of people who I've I've labored with. I used to be a youth pastor. I've labored, I've labored with people who have fallen into this and who now teach these things. When we inevitably encounter this as we, as we live in our communities and as we proclaim this Jesus to the world, we can respond. Not, not that. Not that thing that you're clinging to. No, that can't save you. No, Christ is all. Christ is all. Let's pray. Father, holy, holy, holy are you, God. Worthy, of you, worthy are you of all of the songs that we sing, all of the praise that we give, and all of the glory that you receive. And I pray that as uh, we as a church... Uh, God, as we cast our gaze upon Jesus, God, that we would remain steadfast, that we wouldn't shift from this gospel. As we encounter things that would sway us one way or another, Father, I pray that you would hold us fast, that you would never let us go, and that standing on this foundation of this Jesus, the sovereign king, ruler of over all creation, who by his blood on the cross reconciles us sinners by, by his grace. God, I pray that we would proclaim that and that alone, untainted, in order that we can present everyone that we encounter mature before you.
God, help us to love one another as the church. Help us to uh, call sin out where we see it. Help us to minister to one another with this gospel. The one true gospel. God, help us to minister to our communities and to proclaim Christ in our communities as we seek to further your kingdom. It is only by the grace of the blood of Christ that we are able to pray these things. It is in his name, the sovereign king over all creation, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and respond in worship, singing Christ is all.